This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. Ingenuity for life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, December 13th, the Washington Post gathered local elected officials, industry leaders, and experts for a discussion about the intersection of technology, mobility, and the future of cities. Ubiquitous connectivity and streamlined data collection are enabling cities, their businesses, and their residents to save energy, reduce traffic, and function more efficiently. But smart cities come with trade-offs, among them privacy and other issues. In this segment, we will hear from innovative startups and advocates who are working with urban communities to create the digital infrastructure for the cities of tomorrow. Let's listen. Well, hi, everyone. Once again, my name is Kat Zakreski, and I'm the anchor of the Technology 202 newsletter here at The Post. Um, We're going to kick off our final panel of the day right now, which is on smart cities. And we've got a great group of experts here with us today to talk to us about that. So first, we have Charlie Catlett, who is the director of the Urban Center for Computation and Data at the University of Chicago and Argonne National Laboratory. Then we're joined by Jason Nelson, who is the Executive Director for Partner Engagement at the Smart Cities Council. And then we have Julie Samuels, the Executive Director at Tech NYC. And finally, Mitch Kaminsky, co-founder of Venture Smarter. Thank you all so much for being with us today. And while we're talking, um, please use our hashtag postlive to send any questions you might have for our panel. Um, I have an iPad here, and I'll be taking questions from the audience. And so maybe just to kick things off, I know we just had that helpful video on what smart cities are, but you know this buzzword is thrown around a lot, and people seem to use it in, in very different ways. So I would love to just kick things off by having our panel um, explain to us what, how they think of the definition of smart cities. So maybe do you want to kick things off for us, Mitch? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Uh, everyone has a different, different definition of what a smart city is. And in some ways, this is a positive development, and in others, it creates numerous challenges. So I think one of the most important things for people in the smart city landscape, just to use that term, is figure out what are the core tenets of it. And so being involved with some of the standards bodies and organizations such as IEEE and other folks uh, who are working on this, you really can understand what, are, what is the foundation to help all these things we just talked about, urban mobility, connectivity, sustainability, resilience. Uh, So these are a lot of the core tenants. And then one sort of additional thought is that each city is different. And it's not just a city. You have a local government, municipality. And so what I think is very fascinating about this space is you have this intersection of policy, technology, finance, and all of these different sectors who are now coming together. And it's this complicated puzzle. And so it's our jobs to figure out how to put all those pieces together. And Julie, how are you thinking about it in New York? Yeah, I mean, obviously in New York, there's so much, and we're all so close together. So these issues are really at the forefront of all kinds of city planning right now in incredibly interesting ways. And I think if you take a step back at the highest level, there's this understanding that technology makes the provision of government services easier better. And isn't that governments and cities jobs, right, to provide for the people who live there. But as we've seen with technology in general and its implementation, you've got to be careful. Um, There are unintended consequences. There are 
serious concerns around things like privacy. And so how do we balance those two things in, in New York? We're, we're really dealing with that. How do we implement technology to help more New Yorkers while kind of balancing the concerns? So we've seen that play out in a lot of different ways. We've got a bunch of companies interfacing with the city, sharing data. Uh, we've got a local startup called Carmera who kind of maps the city and is sharing its data with the city. It uses those maps for autonomous vehicles you know, as, as a private company, but they have these data sharing agreements, for instance. That's you know, a smart move for the city. That's a smart city move. Um, I, I think we'll talk a little bit more later about what this looks like. I don't want to just give all these examples of New York, but quickly I would point out there are real examples, too, of the private sector working with the city. Um, we have a task force where we're thinking about AI in New York, artificial intelligence and how that works. We have something called NYCX, where the city is, is bringing the private sector on these moonshot challenges to bring in new technology. Same thing with the subway. So really thinking about how private sector, public sector work together. And so I think that the issue of smart cities and how cities are dealing with technology has really been in the spotlight this year because you know today we've talked a lot about scooters and it's just such a tangible, obvious way that, that we see on the sidewalks of how this trend is occurring. But could you maybe tell us a little bit about the Smart Cities Council and, and how that group came sure. about? Yeah, so uh, we, we at the Smart Cities Council represent about 120 of the world's leading suppliers that are selling to cities. Uh, we try to help them uh, coach cities up, help them help cities. Not every city is New York, so you know there are a lot of cities out there uh, that are small and medium-sized and, and need a little bit of help getting to uh, the ways that they can leverage this technology in their communities. So we aim to help them create more livable, workable, and sustainable communities for all residents. <clears throat> so what do you see as some of the biggest barriers right now? Because I think in the media a lot we yeah. see these pretty high profile <clears throat> battles between regulators and emerging technologies, um, certainly the mobility space, it's obvious, but but in many categories. Right. And, and so how, how do you navigate that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think I think cities are, are, are struggling in, in two major areas. One is the level of just technology education, right? So understanding what is the technology, how can it work, but more importantly, how does it help me solve those big red letter challenges that I have up on my whiteboard every day? In some communities, it is sustainability. In others, it's serving the underserved and helping the homeless community. And in others, it's uh, you know, transportation issues and congestion. So how do we help connect the technology to some of those big key issues that, that those city leaders are facing? The second issue that, that we see is, is that, that cities are struggling with is that uh, fractured in, uh, decision-making and buying environment in which they're in, right? So uh, it, it tends to be a lot of you know, point solutions. I have a problem. I'm going to solve it with this technology and plug it in. Well, if you follow that down the road, 5, 10, 15, 15 years, all of a sudden we've got now a Tower of Babel situation where there's a lot of point solutions that aren't talking to each other. And really now the city is no smarter than it was before. So we try to help cities coordinate and build citywide action plans for being able to leverage this technology. And we've now heard some perspective from the city side, from the private sector. What's the role that academia plays in the future of smart cities? Uh, well, you know, the, the capabilities that we heard about just a few minutes ago with the video and the presentation of being able to know that in this part of the city today the air is not good or or uh, smart intersections these these are areas that require uh, technology research to be able to to 
try them out to make sure that they, they work. The, the innovation often is going to come from universities. We started from the University of Chicago and Argonne National Laboratory to work with the city of Chicago six, seven years ago with a conversation about that whiteboard. We were going in talking to different department heads and, and commissioners saying, tell us about your challenges and then we would go back to the university and to the lab and find researchers who were interested in addressing those kind of challenges. So with a project called the Array of Things, we now have an infrastructure across the city that's experimental that allows universities, national laboratories, the city of Chicago or companies to do experiments on the streets with some of these new capabilities. Um, and, and by doing that, I think with a shared infrastructure that's just for, it's not a smart city product, it's, a, it's an infrastructure for research, um, we can get these uh, players to work together on things that will interoperate, as you rightly point out, is one of the key issues. Can I weigh in on that point really quickly, too? I think that you cannot understate the role of universities in this, and education institutions. And in New York, we've seen this firsthand. Um, if you want your city to be tech forward, it is incredibly helpful if you have the right education, education institutions. In New York, um, Mayor Bloomberg's administration put together Cornell Tech, which is a new university that was built up in less than 10 years. And it has done an amazing job at growing our broader tech ecosystem. And the other universities have risen to the challenge, NYU, Columbia, CUNY. Um, and that is really driving so much of how New York is thinking about tech. And Mitch, you looked like you were ready to say something. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think it's a, a great point that we're diving into here that um, working on smart cities or however we want to label it requires a new way of thinking for a lot of people in the ecosystem, for universities, for governments. And I think there's this interesting uh, sort of trend, right, that technology quickly outpaces public policy, so you have these gaps. Then if you look at the entire market of smart cities or the Internet of Things, not only do you have gaps between those two entities, you have it between those two and universities and this sector and this sector. And so in, you know, in recent years, we've seen the collaboration economy. I think that a lot of these infrastructure projects are going to become more collaborative in public-private partnerships. And Quickly, one thing that we've tried to do at Venture Smarter is uh, catalyze this. So we had this smart infrastructure challenge where we had 80 projects from all around the country, uh, 500 organizations, including educational in institutions, MIT Media Lab, University of Cincinnati, NYCX, a lot of other folks. Uh, and what we did, I think a key part of it is the financing of actually helping these innovators in public sector get these projects off the ground. And speaking of this role of education, um, when the Amazon HQ2 search was going on, one of the criteria that they looked at um, very publicly was education. And, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about it here at the Post. Um, we're so close to Arlington. And also, as I mention a lot in the newsletter these days, I have to mention that uh, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos does own the Washington Post, just as a disclosure. Um, but, but, you know, Julie, I know you were pretty involved in those discussions um, of Amazon HQ2 to coming to New York. So could you give us any behind the scenes look of, of what that conversation was like? Yeah, so, and those conversations are ongoing. And what I think you laid out the question just right. What was Amazon looking for when it chose cities? It was looking for an urban environment, education institutions, public transit, and most importantly, I think talent, um, technical talent. And that, like, we talk about smart cities in this context of like technology, but these are all other things that make cities 
smart in the more traditional sense of, of the word smart, and I think that's really important. Um, and so I think what we've seen is that the cities that, you know, find all those things and kind of marry them together, as Mitchell laid out very cogently before, that's what attracts new businesses. That's how we are going to improve the lives of everyday citizens, which is the point of this. And, you know, one other thing I'd quickly say about that is we think about smart cities a lot in the context of um, new technology, light sensors, scooters, new things. But actually, when you talk about financing big infrastructure projects, we need to use smart city kind of thinking new technology to fix a lot of our crumbling infrastructure. In New York, that means the subways, that the gateway project. You know, we need to fix that tunnel. Um, and there are so many things like that that require modern thinking, technology, data, et cetera. And Julie, just back to the Amazon HQ2 issue, there's been a lot of pushback, um, protests on, on this topic, and criticism of the tax cuts that the city offered. Um, how is that impacting the negotiations that are ongoing? I feel really confident that, the, the listen, the negotiations are pretty much done. I mean, they're that's not exactly right. There's a lot of details to be hammered out, but the deal, you know, the, the memo of understanding, the MOU, is pretty much done, uh, the basic concept. The vast majority of those subsidies are actually as a right. They were not discretionary, so the truth is the city and the state already had those things on the books. Um, so I think we're seeing, obviously, some political theater, but you know, the, the polls all show that the majority of New Yorkers are incredibly excited for HQ2 to be in New York, um, and we're excited for HQ2 to be in New York, and we really actually are looking quite forward to it because, again, to get back to the smart cities conversation, you want to attract talent to a city. You want people to want to live there. You want people to want to work there. You want them to work at big companies and then, you know, leave big companies and start small companies. And you want them to hire their former colleagues. And, and that is how you build an ecosystem, right? And, and that helps the private sector. It helps the public sector. It kind of creates these pools of talent, uh, supports the education institutions, and it all kind of feeds on itself. And we like to, to, to talk about, I mean, it's a, I think the Amazon HQ2 uh, race was really a very good example of what's happening in communities around the country all the time, right? Not, maybe not so high profile, but it's happening every day where cities are looking and figuring out where do they want to, or companies are looking and figuring out where do they want to expand, how do they help uh, create new innovative uh, entrepreneurial opportunities. So uh, cities are, are needing to provide those, those, those sort of platforms. Uh, that smart city technology brings. And, and so we see smart cities not as, uh, not as a destination, but a journey. But more importantly, not as just a journey, but it's actually a race. And it's a race for that economic development. It's a race for that talent. It's a race for those really good, high-quality jobs that communities around the country are looking for. Has the backlash against the Amazon HQ2 decision at all impacted that? Because we're also seeing this not just with Amazon, but in San Francisco, too, where companies have had a lot of tax cuts, but problems like homelessness are still pervasive. And so as criticism of these types of deals grows, how, how is that impacting those discussions? You know, I, so we're not involved in those, discuss, in those discussions directly. I think that... Um, the technology and is, 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 I think, separate from the policy. And I, so I, we don't see those two things as necessarily intertwined. Um, I, I think that cities want to create welcoming environments for uh, business in their communities because, and, and, and part of the 
conversation of doing so is really using the technology to transform that city and citizen relationship, right? You don't want to have to go and stand in line at, at the DMV for four hours in order to renew your license. You want to use technology to show up when you're ready and ha or even have it done online. You don't want to have to, to, to have it be a long, arduous process. So I, I think that it's, it's about creating a welcoming environment, not from a, from a policy standpoint, but from a technology standpoint. Yeah, I can weigh in on the policy piece of that, because yeah. actually we've seen this for sure in New York, and I think you see this, the mayors you saw up here earlier today spoke to this, and I think you see this actually in a lot of cities and states. But the mayor and the governor, as chief executives, you know, as, as in offices that are truly operational, they understand that you need to kind of welcome technology. They understand the promise that you're talking about. And you tend to see that, you absolutely see this with both Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. I can speak to New York, of course. When they went out there and made the Amazon HQ2 deal happen, you know, they see the promise of technology for making for creating jobs and for making the provision of government services, for making the city and the state work better for New Yorkers. Sometimes in the legislatures, a little less, a little less. You see some politics and things right. get crazy, but consistently you often see from chief executives, from the people sitting at city hall and state houses that they want to bring these things there. It's and, hard, but they do. Mm -hmm. And if I could briefly add on to that, I'd say you also want to deconstruct what do we mean policy here? So the federal level is thinking about this from a different context. They move a lot slower than a locality can. And actually a really positive development, I just noticed that D the US Department of Transportation just announced $1.5 billion in infrastructure grants to 49 states. And I think this is the sort of interesting connection of how can the federal government uh, help the localities. And I actually do think there is a great amount of um, uh, there's a, a clear nexus that has to be created between these two because on the one hand, you can't be a technology company and say, we're just going to drop our technology you know, in the cities and of impacting people's lives without having some sort of conversation with the government. And on the other hand, when uh, our ecosystem at Venture Smarter, we have about 2,000 universities and governments at all levels. And when we travel around the country, uh, what we hear is a lot of really unique insights and trends and that this trend towards hiring chief innovation officers at the very local level, uh, trends of trying to welcome innovation. And what Julie talked about, about making a welcoming environment, you know, it's a welcome environment to attract talent. And it's also having these conversations in parallel and educating a lot of these um, folks at the local level who um, can talk a little bit about data and data ownership. But this is one of the really, uh, I think, uh, tremendous issues of our day, you know, this very powerful commodity and who's owning it, where is it going, and, and a lot of citizens and, and policy uh, hold, uh, st stakeholders are not sure how to deal with this question. And so I just wanted to get um, to that point that you made about how the local governments can move a little bit faster. Um, it seems over the last decade or so with the advent of ride hailing and other services, there's been times where these local governments have been caught off guard by new technologies. and um, it seems like in some municipalities that happened again with scooters this year. I mean, has have these governments learned anything from these situations? The answer is, is yes. And I think 
a lot of companies, and I think Bird is a great example of one company that is trying to focus on what are the problems that each locality faces? How can they improve safety for the riders and the community? So I think that's a, actually a great example. And there are other companies in the private sector that do take a different perspective. Uh, but to your point, a lot of the people at the local level, they are embracing this. And I think to the point we were talking about before, to them, it's not about the technology. It's about how can we solve problems for our constituents. And in certain areas, if you go to Newport, Kentucky, or if you go to um, your old neighborhood in Palo Alto, um, they're going to have different problems that they focus on. And in Newport, for instance, they're thinking about the last mile. You know, it's not about getting the latest, new, exciting technology and incorporating it into this town. It's about what is the major problem that they are facing and how can we use technology in a beneficial way to actually solve their problems. And I just want to remind everyone that you can share questions with us with the hashtag PostLive. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot today about this partnership between cities and, and the private sector and how data is, you know, something that the city governments really want to see from the companies. But with, you know, these questions of sensors and, and data collection come a lot of questions about privacy. And so, Charlie, I wanted to ask you a little bit, since you are involved in a pilot project involving sensors with um, the city of Chicago, how have you dealt with those privacy and security concerns as you've rolled that out? Well, from the beginning of our, our project, we didn't just want to bring universities and national laboratories together with the city, but also we wanted to partner with the residents of the city. We're putting devices in your neighborhood, we wanted to have a partnership with the neighborhood about what those devices could or couldn't do or would or wouldn't do. And because we do image processing of, of images of the public way, um, this was a, a key uh, interaction point with the community. So through a number of public meetings and online and other sorts of interaction uh, methods, what we were able to do was to start with a privacy policy that we felt was very strong um, coming from experts in academia and universities and uh, you know, the private sector and public sector. And then we presented that policy and discussed it with residents in these various forums and got their feedback. Something like 400 questions and suggestions are all documented now uh, that went into the policy that we finally agreed upon. And there was a six month uh, public comment period that people could, uh, could engage. And part of the policy is that if we make a change to the policy, there's another six month comment period and we go through that process again so that we don't get out of step with with residents and a big part of that was just explaining in a way that um, people understood what we were doing and and had the right sort of expectations when we take an image of a street corner or a park we analyze that image inside our device at the edge we call it so so we analyze the image there it doesn't get sent back to some data center and then we delete the image so we have this ability to say to residents, these are the five things we're going to extract from the images, the number of people in the scene, the number of vehicles of different kinds. And we're not going to do anything else with the images unless we tell you first and go through this period of, uh, of comments. So 
And so right now in Washington, we're having a big debate about what a national privacy law should look like, but there's also some pressure on local governments to take action on this issue, especially when it comes to things like facial recognition. And so, Julie, could you talk to us a little bit about what you've been seeing in New York in terms of legislative action? Yeah, I mean, there's a bill pending in New York City Council right now about facial recognition, for instance, um, that mostly, I believe, has to do with um, going into physical locations when facial recognition is used in those instances, like retail. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that bill largely focuses on transparency. I think what you said about transparency is so incredibly important. Um, making sure that it that people understand, you know, what we're talking. I think this is true at the federal level too. Any kind of privacy legislation, like we have to have a conversation so that people understand what data is being used for what. Um, and I think that, that that's what we're seeing in some local legislation. You have to bring into that conversation, of course, citizens, government, and the private sector and the people who are building the technology to make sure that you know it's this very delicate balance. You want to make sure it works for all of those parties, that, that the technology is serving the people, that government is able to use it and get the benefit of it, and that the private sector and others are incentivized to create it and provide it. And like finding that right balance is very hard. New York is, I think, at the forefront of trying to figure some of these things out. I think we're ahead of some other cities, but we don't have the good answers quite yet. Like We are trying to get there. And so with the mayors at the end of the panel, we did a rapid fire where they talked about what technology had changed their cities the most in the last decade. Um, I'd love to ask this panel what technology will change cities the most in the next decade. So maybe Mitch, could you start? In the next decade, that's a great question. Because if you said next 15 to 20 years, I might say autonomous vehicles. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting questions about uh, the technology there and obviously the public policy debate is, in the next decade, I think that there's a huge uh, sort of increase in what we're seeing in augmented reality and how that's changing cities. Uh, I also think that uh, how machine learning and uh, neural net uh, learning is really probably the, going to be the next decade. And I think it really goes in harmony with how cities are amassing all this data. And so it's, there's a great promise and there's some great challenges in that. I think I know we've talked a lot about this today, but really thinking about how people get around, thinking about that last mile, how we move people in cities and all the technologies that are going to underlie that can be truly transformative for people's lives. I have to say, though, that that's only going to happen if the regulators get it right and don't mess it up. So we at the Smart Cities Council run a challenge grant on an annual basis. We ask cities to apply. We've got about 75 cities that are completing applications right now, telling us all about the projects that they're undertaking in their communities, and it's cities, states, and and, uh, counties as well. I think the answer to your question is yes. I think it's all going to transform them. I mean, in certain communities where crime is an issue, there will be new techniques and new technology coming in to help the uh, police. There will be in transportation, communities where transportation is an issue, there will be technologies that come in and help transform those communities. So I think it's going to happen in different ways at different communities all around, all over the place. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I'll tell you what I hope happens. I hope that smart cities don't just address the people like us that work downtown and you know drive our cars in and <clears throat> need to find a place to park our Teslas if we can afford a Tesla. 
But I'm hoping that the smart cities will spread opportunity throughout the cities. There are places in, in our cities, in the south side, the west side of Chicago, and certain parts of New York City, every city where the opportunities there are nowhere near the opportunities of other parts of the city. So my hope is that we can use this technology to better understand uh, the city and how, how we're uh, providing transportation or uh, safety for people in, in different parts of the city. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's panel. Thank you so much to all our guests for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.